Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the Song of Solomon, chapter 8 and verses 1 through 7. The Song of Solomon. This book is introduced in this way, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Let's hear now the Word of God as He speaks in His Holy Scriptures. And this is the church speaking to Christ. Oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to instruct me. I would cause you to drink of spiced wine, of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and His right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame, or literally a flame of Jehovah. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Amen. Let's turn also to Psalm 63 and verse 8. This is the Holy Word of God. My soul follows hard behind you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. With God's help, let's consider these verses that we've read specifically. First of all, the verse that we just read, Psalm 63, verse 8. My soul follows close behind you. And it could be translated as our psalm book translates it. My soul clings to you. ESV says the same thing. It's a common and I think the correct, most helpful translation. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And then, just refreshing our memory from Song of Solomon 8, verse 5, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? As we prepare this evening to commune at the Lord's table, perhaps a number of Scripture passages come to mind. 
We think of Psalm 23 where the good shepherd, perhaps David mixing metaphors a bit here, but the good shepherd brings his sheep to a table in the presence of their enemies and their cup runneth over and their head is anointed with oil. And we think of coming to the Lord's table in the midst of a hostile world that rejects Christ, that hates Christ. Jesus says, if they hated Me, they'll hate you. We come to the Lord's table as it were in the presence of our enemies. There are many other passages we might think about. One that comes to mind is a question from Psalm 78 verse 19 where the children of Israel, as it were, asked the question, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Of course, we know that in that passage, God did feed and nourish His people in the wilderness. He gave them that spiritual food, the manna from heaven, and they drank the spiritual water from the rock, which was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10. God prepared them a meal. He prepared them a table in the wilderness. And Psalm 63, in much the same way, in Psalm 63, David experiences a table in the wilderness. Here he is in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Verse 1, his soul is thirsting for the Lord. His flesh is longing for the Lord. He's in exile. He's lost much of what most people would say was his life. This is either when he's running from Saul or as verse 11 suggests while he's the king, perhaps when he's running from Absalom. But he's left his life and his livelihood behind. He's in exile. He's in the wilderness. And he's away from the temple, the tabernacle, the place of worship in Jerusalem. But he's not primarily focused on the lack of physical food and drink. His flesh longs. His soul thirsts for the Lord, his God. The Lord's loving kindness, which he says is better than life. He can be content to be exiled in the wilderness if he has the loving kindness of the Lord, the presence of the Lord with him. And he says that that, as it were, would be a table in the wilderness. He says when he drinks deeply and feeds upon the loving kindness of God, which is better than life. Verse 5, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. His soul will be satisfied as with all choice and hearty meats and foods, as our psalm book says. So the Lord is feeding him. The Lord is nourishing him. The Lord is giving him a table in the midst of a dry and thirsty wilderness. And this relationship that he has with the Lord, which transcends his ability to attend worship at the temple, or the tabernacle rather, it transcends all of the outward privileges of the visible church His relationship with the Lord is described in verse 8, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This intimate communion by faith. He is clinging for dear life to the Lord his God. He's clinging. He's hanging on to the Lord 
He's adhering to the Lord. He's embracing the Lord. He's drawing near and holding fast. He's clinging to the Lord by faith. And his faith is not in vain. He's trusting the Lord to support him. The Lord is worthy of his trust. The Lord's right hand upholds him. So in other words, he's leaning upon the Lord whose loving kindness is better than life. He's leaning upon his beloved He's clinging to the Lord and the Lord is supporting him and holding him by his sovereign right hand. And that's the love relationship that encourages him, that feeds his soul, that nourishes his spiritual life. By clinging and by being upheld, he is leaning upon his beloved. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? It's David, it's every believer. It's every person who comes to the Lord's table, as we'll see. If you come to the Lord's table, you need to come limping, leaning, trusting, clinging to your beloved and trusting that His right hand will uphold you. Not as though you lean on someone or something that's unstable. The Scripture talks about the the foolishness of those who trusted in Pharaoh He was as a a broken reed or a broken staff that if you leaned on that staff, it would break and you would pierce your hand. But the Lord is worthy of our trust. We can lean on Him. We can lean on Him. We can rely upon Him. And He will uphold us. In fact, that's what we see at the very first celebration of the Lord's Supper. John, the beloved apostle, leaning on our Lord's breast leaning upon His Beloved by faith at the table. Well, let's consider these two aspects of our relationship with God, looking at it from, first of all, the angle of our soul clinging to the Lord by faith, and then secondly, we'll consider His right hand upholding us. In other words, first we look at our faith, secondly, we consider His faithfulness. First, our faith. My soul clings to you. As I said, it means to adhere, to embrace, to draw near, to hold fast, to lean upon the Lord. And while it is true that we ought to take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow Christ and follow close behind Christ, Psalm 63.8 talks about in, in our New King James translation, following close behind Him. There's a sense in which biblically that's true, but the imagery here is not of us a few steps behind Him. But the imagery is of an intimacy that is so close-knit that we're right there with Him, and, or better said, He's right there with us because He's upholding us with His right hand. My soul clings to you. The first thing we see in this is faith. We cling to the Lord by faith. We adhere to Him in this relationship by faith. The eyes of faith. Notice, my soul clings to you. The relationship we have with Christ at this stage in this life is not a physical relationship. Peter says, you love Him though you have not seen Him. We don't have a physical, tangible relationship with Christ where we can see Him and touch Him and cling to the hem of His garment. We don't have that yet. We have the eye of faith. 
Our soul clings to Him. Our soul sees Him who is invisible. Our soul perceives His presence by faith, not by sight. And so when we come to the Lord's table, the Lord supplies us with something visible, something tangible, something you can taste and touch and handle because of the very fact that we don't have that physical, tangible relationship with Christ right now. Our union and communion with Him as our standards say, is spiritual and mystical, yet real and inseparable. It's by faith, not by sight. It's spiritual. It's our soul that's clinging to Him. When we take the bread and the cup and we receive these emblems of His body and blood, we are spiritually, by faith, seeing and communing with the Lord Jesus Christ who dwells physically in heaven, but spiritually is present in the elements and in our souls. The eye of faith sees Him. The Roman Catholic Church and other problematic, to say the least, religious institutions will tell us that, oh, in the Lord's Supper, the physical body and blood of Christ is physically present and we're physically eating and chewing and drinking His flesh and blood and not at all. Our soul clings to Him. Our soul sees Him and communes with Him through faith. And not only the eye of faith, but the hand of faith. Not only do we discern the Lord's body by looking at the elements and perceiving the reality of Christ broken and His blood shed for us, but through the hand of faith, we take hold of Christ and we act this out in the sacrament. Those who have taken hold of Christ by faith at their conversion and who are clinging to Him express that in the Lord's table when they take the bread and they take the cup and they receive these elements of the Lord's Supper as it were by faith saying, I receive Christ. I take Him as my head and husband. I receive Him as the bread from heaven. The bread of life. The bread sent from God. This Hebrew word to cling is used especially throughout the Law of Moses and the book of Joshua to describe faith. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, which Paul cites in Romans as an example of the righteousness of faith that Moses is preaching. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey His voice, and that you may cling to Him. For He is your life and your length of days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. So this is, this is all pictured in the Lord's Supper. This is a covenant renewal. Heaven and earth bears witness concerning the vows and the promises and the profession that we renew at the Lord's table. Promising to be the Lord's people. Promising to do what He commands us to do and to live for Him. And life and death, blessing and cursing is set forth. That's what the New Testament teaches. It's a cup of blessing that we bless. It's a means of grace to strengthen our faith It can also be a means of cursing and of chastisement if we do it trivially or deceitfully. When we take the cup and the bread, we choose life. 
we receive Christ afresh. And we profess our love for the Lord our God. It's a feast of love after all. And we promise to obey His voice. And we cling to Him as our life and our length of days. That we may dwell in the land of our inheritance for all eternity. Faith. The hand of faith. Taking Christ. As the Puritans used to say, appropriating Christ. Making Christ our own at the Lord's table. Covenant children, that's what we're urging you to do is to believe in Christ for yourself and then to profess that at the Lord's table where you're taking the elements to yourself. You're feeding upon the bread and drinking the cup so that as it were, you're claiming Christ. You're appropriating Him. You're receiving, feasting upon Him, digesting Him. He becomes part of you. He is yours. Martin Luther used to say that the Gospel consists in personal possessive pronouns. Christ is mine. Without that, there is no Gospel at all. 2 Kings 18, verses 5 and 6 describes the faith. 2 Kings 18, verse 5 and 6 describes the faith of Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, who were, nor, were, uh, nor who were before him. For he held fast. That's our word. Cling. He held fast. He clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded him. So you see his faith. He trusted the Lord. And when he was surrounded by the Assyrian armies and the Assyrian diplomats are mocking him. You're going to trust in the Lord. You're going to put your trust in Him. That's foolishness. We're told that uh, in verse 20, well, they mock Him in verse 20. Verse 22, they say, uh, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, but that's exactly what Hezekiah did. He trusted. He leaned upon His Beloved. And he was not put to shame. Secondly, my soul clings to you involves union and communion. A covenantal union that produces covenantal fellowship. The best illustration of this, of course, is marriage. We think of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's it's something that we anticipate in the life to come, but it's something we celebrate whenever we come to the Lord's table to celebrate communion. And this word clings is the same word in Genesis 2.24 that's used to describe the marriage covenant and relationship that existed between Adam and Eve, our first parents. It says that when marriage takes place, a man leaves father and mother and cleaves or holds fast or clings to his wife. My soul clings to you. That means that we take Christ to be our head and husband. We receive Him. We join with Him by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. And not only are we united to Him, but we fellowship. It's not just a covenantal edict or legal declaration, but it has implications for our relationship with Christ. We enjoy that fellowship on an ongoing basis through His Word, through His ordinances. And often when we come to the Lord's Supper. I mean, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, but it's often that we come to the Lord's Supper. You see this reflected 
in our passage in Song of Solomon chapter 8. Song of Solomon chapter 8, you see the communion, the fellowship. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. There's a cleaving. There's a joining. There's a union and a communion of love between Christ and His people. Between Christ and the believer. And that, my friends, involves affection. It's not just, again, it's not just legal. It's not just, oh, I got to... Jesus like, oh, I got to spend time with my wife, my bride, the church. No, it's actually something He delights in and we ought to delight in as well. There's affection. And you can see this pictured for us in the book of Ruth. Ruth 1 verse 14. Where you have this interaction between Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Ruth 1.14, as uh, Naomi's two sons have died and left her daughters-in-law as widows, and Ruth is heading back to the land of Israel from Moab, and we're told that the two daughters-in-law, verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. It's not just an empty display. It's not just an outward token. It is an inward, deep, spiritual relationship and commitment and devotion. It's not just Judas kissing the Lord, really betraying Him with a kiss. The kisses of an enemy. No, Orpah was not in that deep spiritual relationship of devotion with her mother-in-law. But it was Ruth who put her trust in the God of Israel and thereby was united to the people of God by faith and was able to cleave and cling to her mother-in-law with affection. Perhaps there's no greater example of this than John's Gospel, chapter 20, where you have Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb and she's weeping and the angels say, why are you weeping? And she says, she says she's looking for the body of her Lord. Somebody has stolen the body of Christ. She thinks Jesus is dead, which is incorrect, but her emotion, her love, her affection for Christ causes her even to seek with tears the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens? Jesus appears. She thinks He's the gardener. And then He says her name, Mary. And she says, Rabboni. She recognizes Him. And she clings to Him. And with all due respect to most commentators, Something happens here that I think is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. She clings to Him. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to My Father, but go to My brethren and say to them, I am ascending to My Father and your Father, to My God and your God. And people say, you see, after the resurrection, you weren't supposed to cling to Jesus. You weren't supposed to touch Him because now He's resurrected and He's got this air about Him and this glory and He's going to ascend into heaven. Don't touch Him. Don't cling to Him. Don't take hold of Him. You could do that before in His humiliation, but not now. You can't embrace Him. You can't give Him a hug. And, and, and that's what He's saying, they tell us. Do not cling to Me because, because I'm ascending to My Father. That's not what He says. He doesn't say, don't cling to Me because I'm ascending to My Father. 
He says, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my Father. In other words, I'm not leaving. There's going to be 40 days. You're going to have plenty of time to cling to me. I'm not leaving yet. I've not ascended to my Father. I'm not planning on doing that right now. So you've got plenty of time to go tell everybody else and get the whole group to come so that I can appear to you. That's what he's saying here. I think it's patently obvious. He's not saying don't cling to me because I am ascending. It's don't cling to me because we've got plenty of time until I do ascend. And when he appears to Thomas... He seems to have no problem. Thomas, you can come and cling to me and touch my wounds, my hands, and my feet. So the resurrected, glorified Christ is just as approachable by faith with reverence and godly fear, of course. He's so glorious we would all probably hit the carpet if He appeared. But He's approachable. And He he has no problem with His people clinging to Him. I mean, now more than ever. Now more than ever, we cling to Him. If He lets us cling to the body and blood represented in the bread and the wine, how much more is He going to let us cling to Himself for all eternity? Union and communion. Thirdly, urgency. My soul clings to you for dear life like a drowning swimmer who clings to the lifeguard. Like someone who's falling down the steps and they just grab hold of somebody. Hopefully that person's holding on to the railing. But Jesus is stable and steadfast and secure. We can grab hold of Him and be safe. Even as Peter was drowning, having gotten distracted by the wind and the waves. He's not looking at Jesus as he's walking on the water. And Peter begins to sink. Jesus reaches out His hand. Peter clings to Him. And Christ's right hand upholds Him. There's an urgency. Here we are in the wilderness. Psalm 63 verse 9 says in, the, in this dry and thirsty land there are people trying to kill David. They're trying to hunt him down and take his life. But urgently, his soul clings to the Lord. The Bible tells us we need to flee to Christ. We need to take hold of Christ. The call to faith is not something that you can twiddle your thumbs and say, I'll sleep on it. It's something to believe now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. The time is now. Cling to Him urgently by faith. We need Him. We need Him desperately. And fourthly, that involves humility because by nature we don't want to admit that we need Him desperately. We don't want to admit that we need Jesus. And that's why so many people reject the Christian faith and they say it's just a crutch. You need Jesus, well, isn't that special? Jesus is your crutch. My friends, Jesus isn't just the crutch. He's the resurrection and the life. We're not just limp and lame. We're dead. We're dead. But at the very least, Jesus is my crutch and I hope He's your crutch. I hope you're clinging to Him, leaning on Him, relying upon Him, trusting in Him, not leaning on your own understanding, but acknowledging Him so that He can direct you in paths of righteousness. Humility. Humility. That's what we see the Apostle Paul dealing with when he saw these great revelations of the third heaven and God humbled him with a thorn in the flesh and he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. When Jacob finally, we can say in a sense, arrived spiritually in his relationship with the Lord, he really 
progressed to a significant point as he wrestled with the angel and prevailed at Peniel. What happened at that point? It was when the Lord struck his thigh and he limped the rest of his life. But he, but he relied upon God by faith more than ever the rest of his life. It takes humility even to boast in our infirmities. Fifthly, it involves exclusivity. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. We can't cling to Christ and His cross if we're also clinging to the things of this world. Friendship with the world is enmity toward God. We can't have both. We can't serve two masters. We can't have our hands filled with the things of the world and still have room for Christ. It's one or the other. You have to put down the one and take up the other. You're going to despise the one or, 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 uh, or you're going to love the other. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. It's an exclusive faith. An exclusive clinging. And uh, this is brought out in the book of Joshua chapter 23 when Joshua is exhorting the people by faith to cling to the Lord. Joshua 23, toward the end of verse 7. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them nor bow down to them, but you shall, here's our word, hold fast, cling, cleave to the Lord your God as you have done this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. He goes on in verse 11. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you and make marriages with them and go into them and so on, the Lord will judge you. Listen, He's telling them, cling to the Lord, but you can't cling to the, to the nations. You can't cling to the world. You can't cling to its idols. You can't cling to its pleasures, its treasures, its distractions. And my friends, to the extent that, that you cling to these other things, it will inhibit you from clinging to Christ. And perhaps you're not a believer this evening, and the reason is because you will not let go of the things that you're clinging to with all your might. And it's like the rich young ruler. Jesus says, let these things go and you'll have eternal treasure in heaven. And you're saying, no, I don't want to let these things go. I love my money. I love my this, my that. Apply it to yourself. Let your conscience speak. But you won't give those things up. Maybe you won't give up bitterness. Maybe you won't give up. Who knows what it is. But this is an exclusive clinging. The Lord hates spiritual polygamy. He wants us to have one spouse, even Christ Himself. Sixthly, it involves endurance. Endurance. Listen to the way our word is translated in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. Speaking of the wicked king Jehoram. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. 
The word there is to cling. He clinged to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but it translates it accurately as persisted. He continued in it. It wasn't a one-time thing. He held fast to it. He continued to hold fast to those sins. But my friends, thinking now of our relationship with Christ, the New Testament repeatedly calls us to hold fast, to cling to Christ, to hold fast and hold forth the Word of life. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, our word is translated to hold fast. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. How he emphasizes this as an essential aspect of true faith, that it perseveres and endures. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 He declares to them this gospel that He preached to them which they received. Verse 2, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. He says you're truly saved by faith, but that faith, if it's a true faith, is going to persevere. It's not a temporary faith that just fizzles. It's a true faith that perseveres by which also you are saved if you hold fast that Word which I preach to you. Well, to hold fast is to believe. It's the same thing. To cling, to cleave, to believe in Christ and His Gospel. So he's saying true clinging by faith is something that endures. And the New Testament repeats that so many times, we don't have to belabor the point. Are you clinging to Him? That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper again and again and again to remind us in a special way of our duty to take Him, to take hold of Him, take the bread, take the cup, take the Savior, hold fast to Him again and again, continuously. Seventhly and finally, in terms of this clinging, we see that there is an expectation of faith. There is an expectation. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? Notice the bride coming up from the wilderness, clinging to her beloved, leaning upon her beloved by faith, is not just sitting idly by. She's walking with Christ. She's limping, whatever you want, however you want to picture it, maybe not at the quickest pace, but she's being led by Christ. She's walking with Christ. She's leaning upon Christ, coming up from the wilderness. And so the wilderness situation she finds herself in is only temporary. It's not going to forever be a wilderness with Christ. He's leading her out of the wilderness into the celestial city, into the heavenly inheritance of the promised land, the Canaan above. There's an expectation. David has it in verse 11 of our psalm, but the king shall rejoice in God. In other words, I will be restored. He was restored in this life, but we know that even though goodness and mercy followed him all the days of this life, it was also the case that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23. So there's an expectation When we take the Lord's Supper, we're not simply professing faith in what Jesus did in the past, though that is the case. We're not simply communing with Him through the eyes and hand of faith. Excuse me. But we're also doing this until He comes. 
proclaiming His death until He comes. When He drinks the wine of the kingdom anew with us in heaven. We're anticipating when we will not have a table in the midst of our enemies, but when we will live in a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. My friends, the bread, the wine, they strengthen us. They nourish us. They nourish our hope as we look to that city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. This is a pretty bad world. It's a bad world. It's a discouraging world. And if all we do is look at the world around us, if we're at the table in the midst of our enemies and we can't stop looking out the window at all the enemies and all the evil and all the wickedness, my friends, we're going to have miserable lives. That's why we come to the Lord's table and He fills our cup to overflowing. He puts that oil anointing on our heads and His goodness and mercy follow us. Expectation. This is just the beginning. It's coming. The eternal weight of glory. When all iniquity silences her mouth and it's over and it's just Christ and righteousness and the saints and the angels of God in heaven. My soul clings to you. Well, the second half of this. Your right hand upholds me. Your right hand upholds me. We've seen our faith, but now we see the object of our faith. We're leaning upon Him because we trust that His right hand will uphold us. The faithfulness of God. His faithfulness to uphold us, to keep us, to preserve us, to sustain us, to protect us. Your right hand upholds me. And there's nothing... um, There's no symbolism here. I have seven points as well for this one. But uh, just happened to be seven points. But the first one is this. Upheld spiritually. His right hand upholds us spiritually. Understand that this is speaking about the work of God in our soul. The outward man is perishing. God does not promise that He's going to make us healthy and wealthy and prosperous in all the ways that the world desires. He's certainly very generous with us. But the fact is, this is an upholding that is spiritual. This is the kind of upholding that was true throughout the entire book of Job. Even as all these outward calamities are coming upon Job, nevertheless, Job holds his integrity. Eh, He messes up a few times. The Lord rebukes him. But basically, he perseveres spiritually by faith as a child of God. That is what He is promising here for us. I mean, even the Lord Jesus Christ, even the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, when with one hand the Father is uh, punishing Him for all the sins of His people, at the same time, His right hand was upholding Him. So, Understand that this is a spiritual reality regardless of the outward circumstances. And we saw even this morning in the book of Jude, there's that comforting reminder that the Lord will sustain and protect us. Verse 24 of Jude, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. You say, but okay, He's kept me from stumbling, but then there are other times when He's permitted me to stumble. And I've stumbled. Ah, he says, 
and to present you faultless. So He keeps you from stumbling. He leads you not into temptation. But He does deliver you from evil. He forgives your trespasses. He forgives your debts, your sins. And He presents you in Christ faultless, blameless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. The shame of sin taken away. The the garment of mourning is replaced with the garment of praise and rejoicing. It's a spiritual blessing, a spiritual upholding in our faith. The righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up. Why? Psalm 37 tells us. Psalm 37 and verse 24. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with His hand. Why is it that Judas is the son of perdition who goes to hell and Peter, who was also an apostle and a disciple, is you know, uh, not just a, a, a faithful Christian, but perhaps one of the greatest apostles that ever lived and he's now in heaven. Why is that? What's the difference? One fell away and one persevered. The difference is the right hand of God's power. Peter says elsewhere that we're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That's the only difference between the apostate and the apostle. Underneath are the everlasting arms, kept by the power of God. Secondly, we're upheld sovereignly. We could go throughout the Psalms. We don't have time to do that, but get a concordance. Get a, uh, an eSword app for your phone. Look up the phrase right hand just in the book of Psalms. And it appears many, many times. More times than we have to mention. It's everywhere. And Psalm 63.8 is no exception. And it refers to His power. His power. His righteous right arm of redeeming power. He upholds His people by His right hand. That's why when Christ ascended to all power in heaven and earth, He ascended to the right hand of God. This is telling us that the same sovereign God of which Daniel says no one can restrain His hand, that hand is holding every believer. That hand is protecting and preserving every single believer. Why does the believer endure and hold fast? Because Christ is enduring and holding fast within the believer. Persevering in the believer. Preserving the believer. For Satan to steal a true Christian, an elect saint of God, out of the hands of Christ, he would have to beat Jesus in an arm wrestling match. And that's not going to happen. We're upheld sovereignly. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And I'll say something about that just toward the end. But we're upheld sovereignly. Thirdly, we're upheld affectionately. We talked about how we affectionately cling to Christ and lean upon our Beloved. But it's equally the case, if not more the case, that His right hand upholds us affectionately. In Song of Solomon chapter 8, you find a description of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for His church and the, the joy in the heart of the bride here in that love. 
Let me just start in verse 5. Who is this leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Now I've preached on this before. I'm not going to go into detail here. But the Lord awakened us. The Lord Jesus Christ has given us new life. He has brought us forth by His Word of truth. He has made us new creatures in Christ. And He's done it through the ministry of the Jerusalem above, which is our mother, the church. And He's converted us and planted us in the courts of God in the church. And He's brought us forth through that ministry of the Word. And notice the response of the bride. Set me as a seal upon your heart. As a seal upon your arm. What's this telling us about the love that Christ has for His bride and which the bride desires from Him? It's not merely His arm. It's not merely His arm. He's upholding her with His right arm. His right hand supports me, embraces me. Verse 3, yes, it's His arm. Yes, it's His strength. Yes, it's His sovereign power doing things on her behalf, protecting her, supporting her. But it's not just an outward display of strength. It's an outward display of strength that flows from the heart. The seal is not just on the arm, it's on the heart. The names of the tribes of Israel are not just on the shoulders. They're on the heart of the high priest in his holy ephod. The seal of Christ's love for His people is on His heart. On His heart. And that's very significant because sometimes we may confess, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, He's almighty. Yes, He's faithful. Yes, He saved me. Yes, He died for my sins. Yes, He'll sustain me and I'll persevere. Kept by the power of God. But we live empty Christian lives because we forget that He set us as a seal Upon his heart, he loves us. He takes delight in us. He loves us. His love, David says, in the wilderness is better than life. Solomon says it's stronger than death. Better than life, stronger than death. If you find yourself discouraged this evening, there's only one thing you need to do, and that is to look to the love of God in Jesus Christ, the one who loved you and gave himself for you because he loved you. He gave Himself for you. It's because of the seal on His heart that He set you as a seal upon His arm. And so many, so many things to say here. In fact, it really doesn't matter if we have to skip some other points. I want to develop this further. So, one example, something to contemplate as you're seeking at this feast of love to perceive and receive the love of God in Christ Listen to Hosea 2.14 and following. And this is the book of Hosea about the faithless, sinful, disobedient bride. If that's how you're feeling this evening, then um, this is a verse for you. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth. 
It goes on, verse 16, it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. So much could be said there, but just for our purposes this evening, is Jesus only your master? When you come to the Lord's table, is it only coming to the table of your master or is he your husband? Is he your beloved? Do you love Him? Do you perceive that He loves you? That He delights to commune with you at this table despite the fact that you're a sinner, despite the fact that you've blown it, despite the fact that you're unworthy. He loves you. He takes delight in you. Isaiah 42.1 Behold, My servant whom I uphold, My elect one in whom My soul delights. That's the Father speaking of Christ. But in Christ... You are His beloved son or daughter in whom He is well pleased. In Christ, the servant of the Lord, you are the servant whom He upholds. You are the elect one in whom His soul delights. My friends, this is an affectionate upholding. It's also the case that the Lord upholds us in usefulness. This word uphold is used in Proverbs 31 for the Proverbs 31 woman who, who is uh, diligently at work sewing and using the various instruments of her craft to make garments for her family. She upholds the distaff. She upholds these various tools and implements. My friends, the right hand of the Lord upholds us not in our laziness, He upholds us in our ministry, in our service, in the very things that cause us to become weary, that cause us to stagger, that cause us to be tired and fatigued. He upholds us in these things. Revelation chapters 1 and 2, it says that Christ holds the seven stars in His hand. Those seven stars are the seven messengers of the churches who bring the message of the Gospel to the church. And Christ holds them. And does He not hold all of the servants in the church? We just read that He upholds Christ as the servant of the Lord. And does He not uphold all of His servants in their service, in their back-breaking labor, in their discouraging, seemingly fruitless labor? Does He not uphold them? He does. And He upholds us universally. Whether you're exiled in the wilderness, whether you're there at the tabernacle in Jerusalem, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you go. The Lord is with His people. Psalm 139, verse 10. Speaking of all the different places, let me begin in verse 7. Where can I go from your Spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven... You're there. Well, that's a no-brainer. Obviously, God's in heaven. That wasn't in doubt, but it's important to hear it. But if I make my bed in hell... Now, whatever he means there, the point is he's using an extreme example. Maybe it's the depths of the sea. Maybe it's hell itself. The point is, it really doesn't matter where you go, even if it is hell itself. If you're united to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in that hypothetical scenario... Behold, you are there. God is present in hell to judge His enemies. But hypothetically, if a believer ended up there, the Lord would be with him. 
As Samuel Rutherford said, he'd he'd rather be in hell with Christ than heaven without Him. Christ is with you wherever you go. He's upholding you in heaven, in hell. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Whether in the dark of night or in the light of the morning, doesn't matter. He's always with you. He's always there. He's always upholding you universally and unceasingly. Unceasingly. There may be times in your life where you feel the hand of the Lord holding you with greater experience of His faithfulness. You feel His hand. He's upholding you. There are other times where you feel as if He's absent and He has abandoned you. But the fact is for every believer that from the moment of your conversion, I mean even before your conversion in another sense, but from your conversion to every aspect of your life through death itself unto eternity, He upholds you. Listen to Isaiah 46, 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am He, even to gray hairs, I will carry you. Even if you color your gray hairs. Old age, decrepit, see not, doesn't matter. He's there. He's upholding you. He's keeping you from the womb to the tomb. I have made and I will bear Even I will carry and will deliver you. Some of us need to hear that. I know some of us need to be motivated to get up off our duff and do something for once. But some of us are doing a lot and we need to just sit back in the arms of the Lord. The everlasting arms. And know that He's there to restore our strength. To encourage us. That He's always there upholding us carrying us. Even on the cross at His death, Jesus could say, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted. Even at that moment that the righteous right hand of the Father was upholding Him, even though He was receiving infinite wrath for our sins. Into your hand I commit my spirit. And seventhly, we're upheld securely. We're upheld securely. John 10, 27-29. Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life. Now listen. Some of the most beautiful, reassuring words in all the Bible. And they shall never perish. If you have heard the voice of the Good Shepherd and you have believed and you've confessed your sins and you say, I cling to Him and His right hand upholds me and that's your relationship with God for better or worse in the wilderness, hungering and thirsting, opposed by enemies, failing and faltering, but you're clinging for dear life, drowning, but you grab the lifeguard. If that's you, then this passage of Scripture tells you, you shall never perish. Not ever. Never. You shall never 
perish. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for this to not come true for you, for every believer. It's absolutely certain. More certain than the prediction that the sun will come up tomorrow morning. We're not technically guaranteed that. But the fact is, you are guaranteed that if you are a believing sheep of Christ, you shall never perish. Neither shall, because you see, Jesus knows the objections we're going to come up with. He knew that Arminians were out there. Someone's going to come up with, well, you, you know, somehow someone could snatch you or you might jump out of. He knows all that. So he sets it up right away. You shall never perish. But then he gives some examples. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. To say that a true believer can lose their salvation is to blaspheme the name of Christ because he says, that's impossible. No one's going to snatch them out of my hand. This is the hand, as it were, that created the universe. This is his righteous right arm. No one is going to snatch the sheep of Christ out of his hand. My Father who has given them to me. So the Father's credibility is on the line. My Father who has given these sheep to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You can't even snatch yourself out of His hand. He will uphold you in faith as you cling to Him. My friends, that is safety. That is security. That is absolute assurance. That's the only thing that can cause us to truly sleep at night and find peace in the midst of such a wicked and discouraging and hopelessly sinful world. Your right hand upholds me. And as I said, the only way to approach this table this evening and to commune worthily is to come saying, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? The Scriptures don't tell us who makes that statement, who's asking that question. New King James tries to say it's the relatives. Who knows where they got that? But the fact is, who is it? It's you if you come by faith. If you come leaning, limping, trusting, clinging to your beloved to this table, you will receive a cup of blessing. You will receive nourishment and strength for your soul. And He will use you and He will assure you and He will bless you. So don't be so focused on the curse and the chastisement. These things are necessary for preparation. But understand, it is a cup of blessing. It's a cup of blessing. Rejoice to receive it and to be blessed. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for Your Word. For we draw our hope from Your Word. And even in those times of a spiritual wilderness, as we sang this morning in Psalm 130, as the watchman who waits for the dawn, even so, even more so, we wait for the light of Your countenance. We who are sinful and unworthy in ourselves, who if You should mark iniquity, we could not stand. Yet we lean upon our Beloved. We cling to Him whose right hand upholds us. 
as we come to this table. We pray in His name. Amen.